So today what we're going to do is we're going to take three chapters out of David's life. And I'm not going to go through every single verse, but we're going to go through most of those verses and kind of talk about something special or something um, important that happened in David's life. So today's message, if you're taking notes, um, every week we've talked about David the something. So the week one was David the shepherd, and then David the giant killer, and then, um, then we had David the king was last week, and this week is David the sinner. David the sinner. So how many of you are excited about this message? Yeah. The only people excited about this message are the ones that are sitting next to a sinner, and you're hoping that person gets right today. You're like, listen, you're nudging your husband today, telling him to make sure to pay attention and take notes. Um, so today we're going to talk about David the sinner. One of the things about David we talk about all the time is the great things David has done, right? He killed the giant. He was the king. He did all this cool stuff. But we forget the fact that David had a really bad fall. Like David messed up big time. He messed up big time. And so, so here's the thing. Most people probably know the story. If you don't, we're going to get into it a little bit today. I don't really want to focus so much on David's sin as I want to focus today on his restoration. At the end of the day, we've all sinned. We all know our sin. And, and for me to just say, hey, you're a sinner, that's great. But we already know that. We really need to know what do I do when I find out I sinned? What happens after the sin? How can I recover? How can I be restored? And, and so today, that's what we want to kind of focus on. But David had a really bad mess up. As a matter of fact, he, he committed adultery and he murdered the, the husband of the woman that he committed adultery with. That's pretty bad. There's not a lot of people in here that are murderers that I know of. You know, um, so far I haven't heard yet, but, you know, who knows what will come out. But um, no, not many murderers in here. But, but listen, we've all sinned. We've all got issues. And so today we won't focus so much on that. But, but two things I want to focus on. I want to focus on the why the sin happened. I think, I think knowing that I'm a sinner is easy, but sometimes I need to figure out why I sinned. What caused me to fail? What caused me to fall so that I don't repeat that again? And then the what after the sin, how do I recover from it? Um, and, and so those are the two main things we're going to talk about today. In talking about that, I'm going to use an illustration of a seed. Now, I'm not a gardener. I do not have a green thumb. I have a, a, I don't know what the opposite of a green is, but that's the kind of thumb I have. I can kill a plant unless it's a weed. And if it's a weed, I can't kill it to save my life. But if it's a good plant, it'll die. And in the front of my yard, I had Dustin come out and look at my yard the other day. And, and, um, and, and he's landscape king. And so he came out and he looked at my yard. And, and I said, Dustin, what can I do to just salvage this yard? Because at some point I'm going to sell this house. What do I do to salvage this yard? And he said, set the whole thing on fire. I mean, he just said, this is so bad. There's nothing you can do. And, and um, he's like, you can sow some seeds. I said, do you see how hard this ground is? And he's like... Yeah, you can't sow any seed in that. Like, you're in trouble. So um, I've got plants all the way across the front of my house. Whenever we moved into our house, every one of those plants was green. And I probably had 15 plants across the front of my house. Now, now I'm down to about six plants, and they're all about half brown. I haven't completely killed them, but the bottoms are all turning brown, and then the tops are green. And so um, that's what kind of plant people we are. Right, babe? We can kill them. We can kill them. Um, and then we have weeds everywhere. So I'm going to talk about seeds. And, and an interesting thing I found out about a seed is that, and you, you may have known this already. I know some of you guys are really good at gardening or whatever. But, but did you know that a seed can lay dormant for years before it ever produces um, anything before it ever starts to grow, before it ever begins to germinate, it can lay dormant for years. As a matter of fact, um, it can lay dormant. Some seeds can lay dormant for up to 50 years before they ever start germinating. Now, I've told you this story before, but I'll tell it again. When I was a kid, um, I loved apples and I ate apples all the time. And so I used to collect all of my apple seeds out of every apple that I ate. And I would go in the front yard of my house in Bastrop, Louisiana, and I would plant every one of those apple seeds. And I've always wanted to go back and see. You know, I bet, I bet some guy's living in that house now, and he's got this whole orchard in his front yard, just apple trees everywhere. Um, they've laid dormant for all these years, and then one day they just produced. Um, but a seed can lay dormant for a number of years, and, and, and that's where we're going to start today, because here's the thing. In order for a seed to begin to germinate, even though the conditions may be bad, if the conditions ever get right, that seed will begin to germinate. Even if it's 50 years later, if the conditions are right, the seed will begin to produce. 
And so sometimes what happens in our life is we may have a seed of sin. We may have a seed of disobedience in our life and it may lay dormant for a long time and then, until the conditions are right around us. And so what we say is, is people fail, they mess up, they sin. And we say, I don't know how this happened. I don't know how this happened. I, I was doing fine. And then all of a sudden I just fell apart. I was doing fine. And then all of a sudden I just, I had an affair. Or all of a sudden I cheated on this thing. And all of a sudden I did this bad. And, and, and we feel like sin just happens to us. But I'm telling you today, sin doesn't just happen to anybody. Sin starts as a seed and it lays dormant until the conditions are right for it to germinate in our lives. And so this is what happened to David. We, we talked about this last week, and I want to talk about a couple of different conditions of sin that, that sin needs. And, and the first condition that we read about is the condition of despising God's word. Now, I didn't put all these notes in here today. I'm just so sorry. Uh, so you'll have to actually take notes today if you want to take notes. But condition number one is despising God's word. And, and we know this from last week's message. So if you didn't listen to last week's message, I'll tell you what it said. Um, but the Bible says in Deuteronomy 17, 17, it says that a king should not multiply wives. A king shouldn't have an abundance of wives because the Bible says, God speaking, that if a king has a bunch of wives, eventually they're going to turn that king's heart away from God and he's going to serve other gods. So we read last week in, in 2 Samuel chapter 5 that David becomes king and the first thing he does as king is goes and gets a bunch of wives and concubines, which are women for him to sleep with that aren't his wives. He goes and collects, he multiplies wives. So right off the bat, he is despising God's word. Now, he's not despising in the sense of, I hate, he's saying, I hate God's word. He's despising in the sense of he knows God's word. He just chooses to ignore it. He chooses to ignore it. And that's what happens to a lot of us. A lot of times we know what's right. We just choose to ignore it. We know what we should or shouldn't do. We know what the Bible says. Listen, very few people fail without having knowledge of the word of God. If you have zero knowledge of the word of God, I totally understand your, your failure. I, I, I totally get it. We had a guy one time when, when I lived in, in Auburn and he was a college student at Auburn University and, and he got born again and gave his heart to Jesus Christ and about a week later got arrested on marijuana charges. He didn't know. He didn't realize. And at that time, marijuana was illegal. Nowadays, I feel like marijuana is legal everywhere. But, but at the time, marijuana was illegal. And he just didn't even think about it. He didn't ever, it never crossed his mind that this was wrong. And the cops came in and he had it just sitting out on his table. And so, so it was this, this idea that sometimes if you don't know God's word, I can kind of understand where you're coming from. But most of the time, we know what God's word says about what it is that we're doing. And David chose to ignore God's word. He chose to, to, to do that. And so whenever we choose to ignore God's word and we choose to despise God's word and we choose to turn against God's word, that's a great condition for the seed of sin to begin to germinate in our life. The second, second condition, we're going to start reading in 2 Samuel chapter 11. So we've got two chap, three chapters that we're going to read today. 2 Samuel 11, 12, and then Psalm 51 are the three places we're going to go today. I won't read the whole things, but let's start in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, and, and this is the second condition we're going to get into. It says, in the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war, now just a little history lesson, apparently in the winter of the year um, was whenever it was very rainy, it was very muddy. And, and it's funny because of technology today in today's world, we'll fight in the rain, the, the mud, the snow. We don't care what we fight in as long as we're fighting somebody. As a matter of fact, we just shoot a bomb somewhere. We don't have to be there to actually fight the battle. But back in those days, they had to really plan out their war. Like, if I really hate you, I am not going to fight you in the wintertime because there is too much rain and too much mud, and I don't want to get dirty when I kill you. You know, I mean, whatever the case was, they didn't fight in the wintertime. It was just too difficult. So they only fought in the spring is when war started. That was the, the war season, right? And so in the spring of the year, when the kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. And they destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. So the first condition was despising God's word. The second condition is being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Being in the wrong place at the wrong time. See, the, the fact is in chapter 10, if we were to go back to chapter 10, the same thing happened. 
David sends Joab to start the battle, and then David comes in and closes it out. He comes in and finishes the battle. And this was kind of the, the, the experience that David had in war. You see this pattern throughout the scripture, uh, throughout his life, is that he would send Joab and the mighty men that was like his elite force. They would go out and get things started, and then David would bring the rest of the army and clean things up and claim the victory. But here we are in chapter 11, and David sends out Joab, but David stays behind. There's, a, there's an old saying that the, an idle mind is the devil's playground. And, and there's something about being in the wrong place at the wrong time. There's something about whenever we're not doing the things that God has called us to do. We're not acting in the way God has called us to act. We're not going the places God has called us to go. And then all of a sudden, we find ourselves in a place of compromise. And this is exactly what David has done. He is not listening to, to what God has been speaking through his experience. His experience tells him, you need to be at war, and instead he stays home. And uh, Galatians 5.16 says, So let the Holy Spirit guide your lives, and you won't be doing your sinful, uh, what your sinful nature craves. In other words, we need to allow the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us, and, and we need to act on what the Spirit is telling us to do, not sitting back doing nothing. When we sit back and do nothing, then all of a sudden we put ourselves in the wrong place, at the wrong time. There's been plenty of times in our lives, you and I can both attest to this, when we were somewhere we knew we shouldn't have been. Right? We were somewhere we knew we shouldn't have been. We tell people all the time, if you're in leadership, um, or even not in leadership, if you're, if you're, especially if you're married, you don't need to be riding around in a car with another person of the opposite sex. You don't need to do that. Why? You're putting yourself in the wrong place at the wrong time. Well, Gabriel, you're just being ridiculous. I may be being ridiculous, but I'm being safe. I'm being safe. Whenever I'm here at the church alone, I don't like being at the church alone with a person of the opposite sex. Just us in the whole building with nobody to, to be here. That's not safe. I remember nowadays we, we don't have much of an office. If, if, you, if you don't know anything about this building, if you're new here today, um, our offices, we have two of them for all the people that work here to share. And they're on the other side of that wall. There's no ceiling. There's no ceiling. You hear everything. Uncomfortably, you hear everything. If you get here on a Sunday morning early, I hear every conversation you're having out here. Just letting you know. All you worship team people, I know what you're talking about. You're not hiding it from me because I'm on the other side of that wall. I can hear everything, right? And, and, but I remember, whenever, I remember whenever my dad was a pastor and, um, and my dad had a window installed in his office. And the window was installed in his office so that if he had to meet with someone, that there was a window so there was accountability. People could see in and there was no way he could hide anything. Now, it wasn't that he had this terrible issue with with the opposite sex. It was that he was being safe. You don't put yourself in the wrong place at the wrong time. You got to be smarter than that. So we don't despise God's word. We pay attention to what God has to say. And then we don't put ourselves in the wrong place at the wrong time. That's what David did. Moving down to verse 2, it says, Late one afternoon after his midday rest. So those of you that love to take naps, I just want you to know even David took naps um, in the middle of the day. After his midday rest, David got out of bed, and as he was walking on the roof of his palace, and he looked out over the city, and he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. Now, this is a problem. And we can preach this in a couple of different ways, right? We can preach this in a couple of different ways. We can talk about, uh, we can talk about Bathsheba. We can talk about Bathsheba. She shouldn't have been out taking a bath in public, first and foremost, right? That's a little bit of immodesty. Um, I'm going to say it. It's a lot of immodesty, right? If you're just out there taking a bath in public, I've never taken a bath in public. I don't advise anybody to do that, but she was obviously doing something. And so she's out there. And what does David do? David's on the roof and David sees her. David Caesar, this is an issue that we're having here. Now, I, I want to stop here for just a second because I want to, before I get to the third condition, having a temptation is not a sin. Okay? You need to know that because obviously uh, Chris and Brooke just got back from the beach and Cam and Maggie are going to the beach. There's going to be some immodest people at the beach. Last time I checked, people don't go to the beach to be modest. Now, I've got a sister-in-law and she doesn't want the sun to touch her skin. So she will go to the beach in long sleeves, long neck, hat, pants, shoes, boots, waders, jacket. And then she loves the beach. When she's covered up, she loves the beach. But most people don't do that. 
There's not, a, there's not an issue here with the temptation, right? There's, we don't have an issue with the temptation. Here's condition number three. Condition number three is an unwillingness to walk away from the temptation. David stayed on the roof and watched her. David stayed up there and watched her. And listen, one of our problems in life is whenever we're tempted by something, we immediately should remove ourselves from that situation, but we don't. A lot of times we stay in that place. So the temptation is common. We've got to learn how to get away. We've got to learn how to stop looking. Now, I know because this story has to do with the relationship, it has to do with man and a woman, we, we are going to go there in our minds. And, and sometimes what we're going to do is we're going to say, well, this is just about adultery or this is just about fornication. But, but this is about any sin. This is about any sin. You put yourself in a position of compromise. You put yourself in a place where, where you are tempted by something. If, if your sin, if what gets you is, is some kind of addiction, but you put yourself around that addiction and you're not willing to get away from it, then, then it's the same situation. We've got to be willing to get away from whatever it is. I, I was, uh, there's a verse in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. It says, run from sexual sin. Run from sexual sin. It doesn't say be strong against the temptation. It doesn't say withstand the temptation. It doesn't say put yourself around the temptation until you get victory. It says run away. Run away. Don't stay around the temptation. I was, I've told this story before too, but um, it, it applies so well here. But I, I was in a ministry school one time and, and um, one of the things we did is they called a few of us to come to the church and we were having to put together a, a skit for a, for a church service. And, and whenever we got there, there was this, there was this uh, guy that was a part of my team and he had a real struggle with sexual sin. This is something that had been a struggle for him from a young age and he struggled with it a lot. And so, so we get there and, and, and while we're standing there um, and we're talking... This woman comes in that was also going to be doing participating in this skit with us, and we didn't really know her that well. And so she walks up, and she just happened to have a, a very immodest top on. I'll say it like that. She was she was very immodest. She was not dressed appropriate for being at church with a bunch of teenage boys putting together a skit. And my buddy saw her, and he looked at me, and he looked back at her, and he literally ran out of the building. He went, no, and just ran as fast as he could out of the back of the building. And we didn't see him again until later that night. Like, he didn't come back. He didn't care what the director thought. He didn't care what the pastor thought. He said, I am literally running. I'm taking the scripture to heart. I am running away from this sin. And so he took off, and he left. And I was really proud of him. I laughed at him. I made fun of him at first. But eventually, I was really proud of him. I thought that was really smart of you to do was to run away from the sin. And, and that's, that's one of the things that we need to learn how to do is we need to learn how to run away from sin. And sometimes we don't do this because we're embarrassed. We don't do this because we're embarrassed because we're around our friends. We don't do this because we're embarrassed because what are people going to think? What, what are my friends going to think if I've got a problem with alcohol and I, I've got this addiction and it's, it's overwhelming me and I can't drink without getting completely drunk and I can't, I can't drink without doing something stupid. And so I'm out with my buddies and all of a sudden they start cracking open beers or they start ordering drinks. And, and what would my friends think if I just got up and left? And so what do we do? We stay. We stay. And next thing we know, we're pushing ourselves beyond our limit. What, 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 would, what would my friends think if I had a, a, an app on my computer or on my phone that, 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 that would not allow me to look at certain sites and my friends knew about that? What would they think? I had someone call me the other day and they said, Gabriel, what are the, what are the different safeguards that, that, that you can put on an Apple device? Because my friend's a PC guy and, and I'm more of an Apple guy. But he said, I'm counseling with a guy and he needs some safeguards. And, and what can you do? And I started telling him about screen time and different passcodes. And I, I said, look, I said, we got people in our church that, that give their passcode to their spouse and to their friends. But they don't know the passcode to their own phone to be able to access stuff that they need to access. Sometimes you've got to be willing, right, to get away, to run away from the sin, from the temptation. The temptation isn't bad, but when you hang out with it long enough, 
when you hang out with it long enough. We had a, a tree in our backyard, this really cool um, cedar tree. And I love cedar trees. I don't know why. I just, I really like cedar trees. And so we've got this little cedar tree in our backyard. And when the cedar tree was young, when it was little, we didn't, I already told you, I don't have a green thumb. And so we don't really, we can't really keep anything except for weeds. We're really good at keeping weeds. And there was a weed next to the cedar tree and I did not kill it. I tried to a couple times, but I did not kill it. And now when you look at our cedar tree, our cedar tree has grown up, but it's got all these weeds, all these vines coming out of it, right? And it looks kind of ugly. And this is what happens when we don't run away from our sin. We don't run away from the temptation. Again, the temptation may not be bad, but it's staying around it. Eventually, it's going to grow up with us. Eventually, it's going to become a part of who we are. Let's get down to verse 3 because we've got a long ways to go and a short time to get there. Um, verse 3 says this, He sent someone to find out who she was. And he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So condition number four is, is avoiding red flags. Listen, there are plenty of times in life when we get red flags about a situation and we absolutely avoid them. We absolutely avoid them. We blow right through them. I was, I was racing someone one time in a vehicle, um, and I know that's not right to do, but I was doing it. And so we were driving down this little back road over near Pelham. And so, um, so as we're driving down this back road, this, it was a girl that she thought she could beat me in this race. And so I'm driving, and she's driving, and, and we've got all our friends in the car, and we're going as fast as we could. And all of a sudden, I see the sign blow past me, and I read the sign as it blew past me, and it said, road closed construction. And I thought that can't be good. And so I immediately hit my brakes. And when I did, she thought I beat him and she took off and then the road ended and it wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. She didn't die. It wasn't like Looney Tunes where they go off the bridge, but the road, the asphalt, they were building out this road and the asphalt stopped. And it was about a, it was about a foot and a half drop off to just dirt and rocks and her little Camry, just the bottom of her Camry got wrecked. I mean, just boom, boom, she hit that thing. She blew past the, red, the, the roadblocks and the red flags. And whenever we see red flags in our life, we need to learn how to stop what we're doing. There are red flags that God puts up. Here are the red flags for, for David when it comes to Bathsheba. Number one, her husband, Uriah, was a mighty man. A, he's a killer. Right? Like, don't mess with this dude. But B, he's one of David's mighty men. The mighty men were special. The mighty men were part of the crew that showed up in the cave of Adullam when David was running from the king. When David didn't have anybody, the mighty men were the ones that showed up. And David trained them personally. He raised up these mighty men and taught them how to be warriors. And, and Uriah was one of his mighty men. It was one of his closest warriors. It was one of the best, the elite. It was his, his personal guard. Uriah was one of those guys. He should have known right off the bat, that's a red flag. Hey, I don't need... First of all, I don't need to be messing with someone that's not my wife. But second of all, I sure don't need to be messing with someone that is, is the wife of one of my closest allies. Then the Bible says that she was the daughter of Eliam. Eliam was Uriah's father-in-law, and he was also one of the mighty men. David, come on, dude. Like, not only is this your, Uriah's wife, but this is Eliam's daughter. Like this guy is also a mighty man. This guy was with you way back in the day when you didn't have nothing. And he's the one that protected you and loved you and fought battles for you. And he puts his life on the line for you. And David still blew through the red flag. Something that doesn't say here, but you can look it up in other places, was that she was also the granddaughter of a guy named Ahithophel. Ahithophel was David's closest advisor. So Ahithophel was Eliam's dad, and, and Ahithophel was David's closest advisor. They say in the Bible, later on in, in the book, they say that Ahithophel's words were as though they were spoken by God. They were so wise. And so when David had to, had to get some wisdom, he needed some understanding. Ahithophel was his best boy. He would call in Ahithophel to give him wisdom from God. Now, can you imagine you see this woman and you take this woman, you, you desire this woman and you find out who she is. So, so you find out that her husband is a mighty man. Her dad is a mighty man. And her grandfather is probably in the room next door because he's one of your advisors. Those are red flags. Right off the bat, that is God saying this is not a good idea for you. Stop what you're doing. The Bible says this, 
in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says the temptations in your life are no different from what other experience, others experience. In other words, temptations are common and God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. These red flags are God giving you a way out. God gives us opportunity after opportunity to stop what we're doing. But the condition for sin to germinate, one of the conditions is the, the, um, the willingness to just blow through all the red flags. And then the fifth condition, this is the last condition, is, is this. He pursued his desire. 2 Samuel eleven four and 5 says this, Then David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her um, period, and she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent a message to David saying, I'm pregnant. He pursued the desire. He went after the desire, and this is where sin finally produces fruit. James 1 says this, Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. When we despise the word of the Lord, when we reject the, the red flags of the Holy Spirit, when we don't walk away like we should, sin begins to germinate and produce fruit. For David, he slept with this woman and he got her pregnant. He slept with a woman, he got her pregnant. And, and right off the bat, this is a good time to stop, right? If this is a good time to just... But we find out in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 6, David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So David calls in Uriah from the battlefield. Uriah is out fighting a battle for David, and David calls him back home. This is the perfect opportunity for David to confess. It's the perfect opportunity for David to say, Uriah, I'm sorry, I've messed up. Uh, I slept with your wife. I got her pregnant. This is really, really bad, but we can work this out. Like, this is his chance to, to get it right. And instead, here's what David does. I'm not going to read all the scriptures, but, but the rest of the chapter talks about David begins to try to cover up his sin. So he tells Uriah, hey, man, here's what I want you to do. I really appreciate all you've done for me. I want you to um, go home and all your friends are in battle, but I want you to go home and you go home and you sleep with your wife. You go home and, and you have some time with your, with your wife. You guys have a date night on me. I'll pay for it. I'll send you to the nice restaurant. I'll pay for the movie. And you guys go out and have a good time. And you know what Uriah does? Uriah says, there's no way. There's no way I'm going home when my men are in battle. I'm not going to go spend the night with my wife. So David gets word of that. He gets mad. And David says, listen, here's what we're going to do. He calls Uriah in and says, you're going to hang out with me. And David gets Uriah drunk. I mean, just gets him as sloppy drunk as he can get, hoping that Uriah is going to go home and sleep with his wife. And Uriah, even though he's drunk, Uriah says, I have enough integrity that I'm not going to go sleep with my wife when my men are at battle. So Uriah sleeps at the city gates. He says, I'll just sleep right here on the ground. Now, now, David should have learned a lesson from this guy that he's trying to manipulate, but he doesn't. So David tells Joab, his commander of the army, he says, send Uriah back to the battle. That's where he wants to be, send him to the battle. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to put him at the front line. I want you to press hard against the city. And he said, then I want you to back up and leave Uriah exposed. So David uses the Ammonites to kill Uriah. Uriah gets killed, he dies, and David thinks it's all over. David ends up marrying Bathsheba after she mourns for her husband. And, and that brings us to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Now, I'm going to skip the first six verses. We're going to go to verse 7. But let me tell you what happens in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Starting in verse 1 down to verse 6, uh, a prophet named Nathan came to David. And he said, David, we've got an issue in the, in the country. David said, what's the issue? He said, there was a man that, um, that had a sheep. He had this little lamb, and he loved his little lamb, and, and it was a family pet. And, and he had this little lamb, and his family loved the little lamb. But the, his neighbor, his neighbor wanted to cook lamb for dinner. His neighbor wanted lamb chops. And the problem was the neighbor was too greedy to cook one of his own lambs. So the neighbor snuck over the fence, went and grabbed the, the other guy's lamb, stole his lamb, brought it back, killed it, and ate it. 
And David gets so mad. David's like, we're going to just kill this guy. Like, let's go. Let's get some guys together. Let's go out there and let's kill this guy. This is terrible. And, and Nathan looks at David and says, you're the man. You're the one. You're the one that stole the lamb. And so that's where we're going to pick up in verse 7. Nathan says to, the, to David, you are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king of Israel, saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. The problem with David was he was never satisfied with what God gave him. God had given him plenty, but he wasn't satisfied with it. Verse 9 says this, Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? That takes us back to the beginning where we said one of the first conditions for sin is to despise the word of the Lord. God brings that back up to David. He said, you've despised the word of the Lord. For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. Verse 10 says, from this time on, your family will live by the sword and you have been, uh, because you have displeased me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes. He will go to bed with them in public view. You did it in secret, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Let's pause right there for a second. Let me just tell you this. There are consequences to our sins. And we need to understand that. We need to get that. Like, there's consequences to what you do. Um, and, and I want you to see something real quick. Verse 13, David confessed to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. The rest of verse 13 says, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord by doing this, the child born of this bad union is going to pass away. So David needs to understand something. Yes, you're forgiven. Yes, you confessed. These are good things, but there are still consequences that you got to live with. I think sometimes what we think is, we thank God because I come to you and I ask you for forgiveness, that you're going to cover everything up and hide it so that nobody knows what I've done. You're going to cover everything up, and so I can hold on to my little secret for the rest of my life. And what God says is, God says to David, Nah, what's going to happen is, I'm going to forgive you, but we're also going to expose some of this stuff. And, and there's going to be some fallout from what you did. There's going to be some fallout. I want to give you just a very interesting thought here, and then we're going to get into the restoration process. This is straight up like uh, Dateline. Like, I love, I tell you this every time, I love Dateline. Someone asked me the other day, they said, do you really watch Dateline as much as you talk about? And I said, I watch it more than I talk about I will sit down, Perry and I will watch, like, like we found that normal datelines are like two hours long, and 2020 and 48 hours are all two hours long, but we found that there's another channel that will show dateline secrets uncovered, see how much I know about this, and if you watch that one, they shorten it up to an hour, so we'll watch like three of them in a row, we don't care, we love dateline, and I found dateline right here in the scriptures, listen to this, <laughs> listen to this, this is crazy, this is crazy, but I just want to explain to you something. I need you to understand that there's always consequences to what we do. You and I think, like, this is how I think. I think I sinned. I'm the only one that's going to pay for this. But whenever we sin, sometimes the worst punishment is when we don't pay for it and everybody else does. David deserved to die. He didn't die, but guess what he had to do? He had to watch his son die. That's bad. David didn't die, but, but he had to live with the guilt of what happened. And then later on, one of his sons raped one of his sisters. And then his other son killed that son. So he's got, he's got sexual sin. He's got murder happening in his own home. None of it happening to him, but it's happening in his own home. Man, that's bad. But these are seeds that he's sowing in his life, and he's trying to get it right. Here's the dateline part. This is crazy to me. I never thought about this. I told you earlier that that Bathsheba's father was Eliam and his, her grandfather was Ahithophel, and Ahithophel was David's closest advisor. Well, there's going to come a point later on, and we're not going to preach about this, but there's a point later on where David's son, Absalom, turns against David and tries to take over the kingdom. And whenever he tries to take over the kingdom, the Bible says, oddly enough, 
Like a lot of people in the house, in the palace, go with David. David decides to leave instead of fight. He says, I'm getting out of here. He leaves. But when he leaves, this is a weird one. There's one guy, one of his advisors stays to help the rebellious son. You want to guess which advisor it was? Ahithophel. When I used to read that, I never thought about it because I didn't realize Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. And so I never really thought about it. Then all of a sudden, when I read it again, knowing who he was, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. He wants to turn against David. And here's the advice that Ahithophel gave Absalom. He said, Absalom, here's what you ought to do. You ought to get David's 10 concubines. Take them up on the roof. The same roof where he watched my granddaughter. And you ought to sleep with all 10 concubines. And let the whole city see it. You know what Absalom did? He did exactly what Ahithophel said. Which is exactly what was prophesied by Nathan. Listen. Our sin has consequences. And you need to understand that. I need to understand that. And and that's not a scary thing. I'm not saying that to like, oh, well, you know, look what you're doing. No, no, no. It's something we need to think about. We need to think about the fact that whenever I sin, it's not just about me. It's about him, and it's about her, and it's about grandkids. It's, there, there's, there's life happening around. It's about the people that get hurt. David never thought about Ahithophel being hurt, but Ahithophel was obviously hurt and turned against David. So let's get out of that. Let's get into the restoration process. So David says um, to Nathan, uh, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And then, and then David would go on to write Psalm 51, and this is where we'll end the message today. He writes Psalm 51 as a... Really, honestly, I look at it almost like a pattern of restoration. It's like a, it's like a restoration process. And so he wrote this from a place of hurt. He wrote this from a place of, of pain. He wrote this after the sin with Bathsheba. And, and so let's just read through this chapter and, and stop every so often. So verse 1 of Psalm 51, it says this, Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stains of my sin. Verse 2, wash me and cleanse me from my guilt, purify me from my sin. The first thing in our, the first step in our process of restoration today, our first step needs to be make our relationship with God a priority. I counsel people all the time. I, I tell people all the time, I'm not a good counselor. It's not what I'm best at. But, but I counsel with people a lot. And a lot of times what I hear is I have spouses that will come in and they're saying, hey, I've got, we've got issues with each other. Like we've got a problem with each other. And, and how can you help us get our marriage right? And the one thing I tell them every single time is, number one, get your relationship with Jesus right first. If Perry and I have a problem, me trying to fix this problem does me no good if I don't fix this problem. Because chances are one of us has a problem this way with Jesus, if not both of us. And if we can get this relationship right, it makes this relationship work a lot better. Why? Because marriage is always... Paul compares marriage to our, uh, to our salvation anyway, to our relationship with God. So we got to get our relationship with Christ right. And so that's the first thing David says is right off the bat, he, he begins to speak to God. He says, I'm going to establish this as the first thing. I want to get my relationship with you right. But a lot of times what we're worried about is we're worried about getting our spouse back. We're worried about getting our ministry back. We're worried about getting our job back. We're worried about getting our friend back. And listen, don't worry about getting stuff back. Worry about getting things right. First and foremost, verse three says this verse three says, for I recognize we're going to go three through five for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night against you and you alone. Have I sinned? I've done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say and your judgment against me is just for I was born a sinner. Yes. From the moment my mother conceived me. So the second step, the first step is get our relationship with God, right? The second step is to learn how to own it. We got to own it. Just own your sin, own your issue, own your failure. Um, what does that mean? That means, first of all, I got to own the rebellion. He says, he says that I recognize my rebellion. I recognize the fact that I messed up. You know what we do a lot of times? We want to make excuses for everybody and, and everything. And, and I wouldn't mess up. It was, it was that person's fault. And, 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 and he was dressed immodestly. And she was doing this. And, and, they were doing, and we want to make excuses for everybody. But the fact is, it was us who committed the sin. Own your sin right off the bat. He said, he said I did it. And then, and then we need to own the fact that we sinned against God. He's the one we offended first and foremost. 
Sometimes, and that's where that brings us back to that first part. Sometimes if I think my sin is against my spouse, then what I try to do is I try to get, get things right with her instead of get things right with him. We need to recognize the fact that my sin, first and foremost, is against God, not against them. And I get this part right. It helps me get this part right, but I got to get this right first. So he says, he says that my, I own my rebellion. I know the fact that I've, I've sinned against God. He, he, whenever we sin against God, it's because we've despised his word. We've rejected his spirit. We said that earlier. And then the next thing is he owns the consequences. He says this. He says, you'll be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. David says, listen, here's the deal. I get it, man. I messed up. I sinned. God, whatever you want to do. I deserve it. Whatever you want to do, I deserve it. You want to have mercy on me? That's great. But if there's consequences that I got to pay. I've had people, I've had people talk to me before and they didn't understand why they got fired from their job, even though they did something really, really bad, but they asked God to forgive them. And I'm like, just because God forgives you doesn't mean your boss forgave you. (laughs) You're going to go to heaven. You're just going to go to heaven poor, right? Like, like you got to understand there are still consequences for your sin. There's things that have to be worked out. And we can't get mad at God because we've made a bed that we have to lie in. we got to still understand that God is just in his judgment. And then the next thing he says is, I was born a sinner. And at first I was like, why does he throw that in there? But then it hit me. When he says I was born a sinner, he's saying, look, I've been a sinner my whole life. Like, I get it. I understand that my nature is to sin, and it's not somebody else making me do this. I, I can't blame the school. I can't blame uh, the, 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 the work. I can't blame the other people. I've got to own it. I get it. It's me. And then the third, the third step of the process is to endure the cleansing. So, so we've got to get our things right with God first. Then we've got to get... Um, we got to learn how to own it, and then we got to endure the cleansing. In Psalm 51, 6 through 9, it says, But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there, truth in the inner parts. Um, he, wait, it says, Honesty in the womb, wisdom even there. Verse 7, Purify me from my sins, and I will be cleansed. Um, wash me, and I will be watered in snow. Give me back the joy again. You have broken me, now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Um, up at the, at verse six, where it says honesty in the womb, that doesn't mean actual womb. It just means the deepest part of who I am. And and so here's the thing God wants. God wants truth to be exposed even in your inner parts. I'm not saying you got to tell everybody everything, but you need to learn how to confess to somebody. And we need to learn how to peel back that onion and confess the deepest parts. I had, a, I had an accountability partner one time. There was three guys, and we decided to be accountability partners, and we were going to tell each other everything. And so, so we got in, and the first guy started talking, and he told us all the embarrassing things that he had done. And we're like, okay, we can pray with you about that. And then I, it was my turn next, and I told everybody all the embarrassing things I had done. And we're like, okay, we can pray with you about that. And then the third guy got in, and the third guy says, well, I struggled this week to give my tithe. I gave 7% instead of 10%. And we were like, wait, 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 hold on. We just gave you every embarrassing detail of our deepest part of our hearts. And you're telling me that your biggest sin is that you gave 7% instead of 10% tithe? I don't even know if that's a sin yet. Like, what are you talking about? It wasn't long before it came out that this guy had a huge addiction that he was covering up and wouldn't tell anybody about. Turned into a big sexual sin. He was in the ministry and lost everything and... And he's recovered now, and God's restored him. But, but man, what, what could have happened if he would have learned to have truth in the inmost parts? In the moment when he had the opportunity to peel back the onion, what if he would have given us all the things and let us help him? I don't know. Then it says, it says purify, um, and it says remove the stain of my guilt. What it's talking about there in the Old Testament, ooh, we got to hurry. In the Old Testament, if they found mold in your house, if they found mold in your house, they had a process for cleaning the mold in your house. It's pretty cool. Um, I wish we still had this process today because I've been in some places that have a lot of mold. And um, so they had this mold in their house. And what they would do is they would come in and they would scrape the mold off. And if the mold came back, they would take those brick, that brick out and the bricks all around it. They'd pull those out and replace them. And if the mold still came back, they would dig all the way down to the foundation and build it back up. And if the mold still came back, they just tear the house down and you got to go get a new one. Right. Like at the end of the day, so you just got to move. You know, you got to get away from here. 
And what David is saying here is he says, remove the stain of my guilt. What he's talking about is that same process of, listen, there's some things in our life. And in, in order for us to get them right, we got to be willing to endure some cleansing. And we got to be willing to take some bricks out. we got to be willing to get some stuff scraped. And if we can't get it right, we need to break some stuff down to the very foundation. So what that means is it may mean that there's more than just saying, oh, God, forgive me, and then moving on with your day. Sometimes it may take coming down to the altar and praying about it for a little bit. It may take confessing and repenting. It may take some counseling. It may take going to a professional counselor somewhere. It may take some deliverance in some areas. It may take some more than just, let me just get a little prayer in. If you've got some sin in your life that is deep-seated and rooted in there, sometimes it takes some work to get that stuff out. It doesn't take work to get forgiven. That part's easy. The Bible says we confess to God and he will forgive us. Boom, done. But it says we confess to man and we get healing. Healing is a process. Healing isn't always easy. We've got this big, you probably didn't notice it because he did such an awesome job painting it. But outside the back of the building, there's a big shipping container. And in the gym that's using our, uh, using our building every week, they, they've got it for their storage. And, and, um, and the owner of the gym, Andrew, he goes to church here. He's working security somewhere in the building right now. He, he wanted to paint it and make it look really nice. But before he could paint it, I was out there with him the other day, and before he could paint it, he had to get out there and he had to pressure wash it. And after he pressure washed it, he had to go find every single place where there was a little bit of rust. And he had to get a grinder and he had to grind down the rust, which actually meant he got his intern to come in and grind down the rust. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. So he had to grind down the rust And then he had to go back over and seal all the places that he ground down. And then he had to come back and paint the whole thing. You see, there's this process that you have to go through sometimes because if you don't get the rust early, it'll corrode all the way through. And for us, sometimes there's some grinding that needs to go on in our hearts to get some stuff out. And that brings us to the the fourth one, and that is the soft heart. We got to have a soft heart. Verses 10, uh, verse 10 says this, creating me a clean heart, O God, renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. The book of Ezekiel, the Bible says that God will remove our heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. That heart of flesh means something soft and something pliable, something easy to obey. He also says he'll give us a new spirit. Verse 13 says, Then I will teach your ways to the rebels, and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God, who saves. And I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. Do not desire us. Let's pause there. Unseal my lips. Listen, you want to know why we worship on Sunday morning? Sometimes we worship because we're being restored. Because we've been through a process, and, and that's why we worship. And so if there's somebody singing around you, and they're singing loud, and they're singing off-key, it's okay. Because what's happened is they've probably been forgiven of some junk. And maybe you need to get forgiven of some stuff, too. And you might sing loud and off-key, too. And, and you just need to let God have it, right? But he says this. It says, forgive me uh, for the shedding of blood, O God, uh, who saves. And I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, and my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. This is interesting to me, verse 16. And the band, you guys can come on up. It's interesting to me that the Bible says that David says, you don't desire a sacrifice. Back in those days, the process for being forgiven from a sin was to go get a bull and kill that joker. The process for being forgiven for a sin was to go get a, a, a lamb or a goat, and you take it and you kill it and you burn it on the altar. There was a sacrifice that you made in order to get forgiven of your sins. And what David says here is, he says, you don't want a sacrifice. He says, God, you don't want the process. You don't want the five steps. You don't want the three steps. You don't want the process. What you want, and the Bible says in verse 17, is the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Can I tell you something this morning? God doesn't want your five steps. He doesn't want this sermon. He doesn't want your notes on this sermon. And you start working down the five steps of how to be forgiven. He doesn't want your repentance. He doesn't want your your confession. He he, he doesn't want your um, getting things right. He doesn't want anything if he doesn't have your heart. Because the Bible says that there's people that will worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It's in vanity that we worship him with our lips if our heart's not right. We can talk all day long about, God, I did all the steps and I did all the things. And, and, but if your heart's not right, if the only reason you're asking God to forgive you, if the only reason you're wanting restoration is, is so that you can feel good about something, not so that he can feel good. 
We bring everything back to him. We bring everything. He wants our hearts more than anything else. He wants a repentant heart. We talk about repentance all the time here. It's got to be a place that that becomes normal to us. It's got to be something that becomes a part of who we are. Verse 18, it says, look on favor. Look with favor on Zion and help her. Talking about this city. He says, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. I find it interesting here that the walls of Jerusalem aren't broken down. When he wrote this, it's not like Jerusalem's under siege. He's talking about his own life. When he talks about Zion there, that's also known as the city of David, a city he named for himself. And whenever he's talking about this, he's talking about these walls. The walls of his life have been broken down. The walls of protection have been broken down. He's allowed the enemy to come into his heart and deceive him. He's allowed the enemy to come in and he followed blindly. And he's saying, God, at this point, I need you to rebuild the walls. Listen, we spent some time talking about sin. We spent some time talking about Psalm 51. But where we want to end is we want to end in a place of restoration. I believe God doesn't want to leave us in a place of of guilt. He wants to bring us to a place of joy and restoration. He wants to bring us to a place of being rebuilt. Verse, Verse 19, and this is where we're going to end. Verse 19 says, You will be pleased with sacrifices offered with the right spirit. With burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, the bulls will again be sacrificed on your altars. In other words, what he's saying is, when I come with the right heart, then you're going you're gonna to love my worship. When I come with the right heart, you're going to love my giving. When I come with the right heart, you're going to love the fact that I serve. When I come with the right heart, you're going to love it when I pray and I seek you and I read the Bible and you're going to speak back to me. But, but until I get the right heart, none of that stuff's going to happen. But when I get the right heart... When I get the right heart, not only are the walls of my life rebuilt, but my worship is rebuilt. My worship is rebuilt. Next week, Cowboy's going to preach and he's going to talk about our worship. And it's going to be, we're going to talk about how to rebuild that worship. Because that's what happened with David. The very end of David's story when it comes to these chapters, and you can stand up with me today. After Nathan confronts him and He goes through that whole process. The next thing that happens is the Bible says that Joab is at war. And Joab calls David. Says, hey man, we're at war. We need you. You know what David did? He didn't stay at home and take a nap on the roof. He said, let's go to battle. And he packed up his stuff and he went to war. And he got right back to where he needed to be. What God wants for you today and what he wants for me today is get us right back where we need to be put us back on the track that he's called us to. Amen. I want you bow your heads with me this morning as our prayer team comes down. God, right now I pray for each and every one of us today. And, and Father God, we can find ourselves in David's story. I know I can. We can find ourselves in places, God, where we've maybe despised your word or, or, or places, God, where we keep putting ourselves in the wrong place at the wrong time. God, we can find ourselves in places of compromise. But God, maybe we've even found ourselves in a place of sin where we've really messed up, we've really failed. But God, I thank you so much for Psalm 51 that there's also a place where we can learn how to own it. There's a place where we can get some cleansing. There's a place where they can come in and they can grind the rust down and seal us back up. And that's what you want to do. You want to rebuild our walls. You want to rebuild our life. You want to rebuild our worship. God, you want to put us back in that place of restoration. So God, I pray for everybody in this room right now that's dealing with this, that's that's walking through this. And God, there may be some of us today that need to walk through that restoration process. There may be some of us today that are are struggling in some of these areas. And so I just pray right now that you would deal with our hearts. Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts right now. Speak to our hearts right now. This morning, as we close out this message, I want to know if anybody needs prayer, we want to pray with you. If you need prayer, if you need to give your heart to Jesus Christ, you need to be born again today. You need him to forgive you of your sins. We want to pray with you this morning. If you've got something going on in your family and your finances and your health, we want to pray with you this morning. Maybe you've got something happening that we talked about today and you need to be restored. You need to be forgiven. We want to pray with you today. So if that's you, whatever your need is, whatever your need is, as Riley sings one more song, I want you to slip out of your seats. I want you to come down to the front and let somebody pray with you today before we dismiss.